Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thanks so much for listening. The sponsor for this episode is Centralis Wine. Centralis is an ecological winery that I started to protect or benefit the environment and my community with every business and winemaking decision. I envision a wine world in which humans are the students and servants of the non-human world, regenerating and protecting the vitality of ecosystems and promoting the diversity of life through wines that uniquely and deliciously reflect local abundance. Centralis wines feature foraged prickly pears, urban perennial polyculture wine garden produced grapes and other fruit, gleanings from urban fruit trees, dry farmed century old vines, and organic and biodynamic viticulture. If this sounds interesting to you, join our email list or wine club at centraliswine.com. That's C E N T R A L A S wine.com. For this episode, I had the pleasure of talking with Kendra Knappick of Ellison Estate Vineyard, a vineyard of American grapes on Grand Isle in the middle of Lake Champlain, Vermont. Kendra and her husband Rob practice animal grazing, integrated regenerative viticulture with a flock of sheep and organic practices, and they make an array of natural wines. We talk about all this, and Kendra talks about the joys and challenges of embracing the life of a wine grower while having young children in a full-time job, in her case as a veterinary oncologist. As hard as you can tell she works, you can also hear in her voice that she's fueled by the beauty of what she's doing. The process is as impressive to me as what she's building. And one more piece of evidence that Vermont is a hot spot for some really cool winemaking. Enjoy. Kendra, welcome. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Adam. Uh, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. And I would love to start by you just sort of telling us where you are in the world. Well, uh, right now I'm in Grand Isle, Vermont, <laughs> and I'm on um, my vineyard which is um, on the east side of an island um, uh, in northern Vermont. Um, That's so it's the, called the Lake Grand Cham- Isle. Lake Champlain Islands. Yeah. So is Grand Isle the name of the island? So or is that the name Grand, of the town so on the island? There is a couple islands. So Grand Isle is actually the northern part of um, a bigger island. The southern part is South Hero. I believe the entire island is actually called South Hero Island. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, but there's an area north of Burlington in Vermont called the Lake Champlain Islands, um, which consists of um, South Hero, North Hero, Grand Isle, Isle Mont, and Alberg, which is actually not an island at all. It's a peninsula off of Canada. Um, but it's a very... Um, unique and kind of undiscovered place in Vermont um, that is just stunningly beautiful. Uh, My family actually, my mom grew up in Alberg, so I spent a lot of time here growing up, um, so it's a special place for me. What is the name of what you're doing? Um, So our vineyard is called Ellison Estate Vineyard, Um, and so my husband and I purchased this farm about four years ago. And um, how big is it? Uh, so it's a 50 acre farm, and we have 10.3 acres of grapevines. And okay. when we initially, um, so it used to be um, called East Shore Vineyard, and it was one of it's one of the older, larger vineyards um, that were planted in Vermont. Um, the f- kind of first wave of vineyards, bigger vineyards, got that got planted in Vermont or in the Uh, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, So Lincoln Peak Vineyard, Shelburne Vineyard, and East Shore Vineyard was one of those vineyards. Um, It was planted by Bob and Linda Livingstone. Um, So it was a vineyard that when we came across it, which is kind of a long story, but um, was abandoned for um, a little over a year. It wasn't pruned the previous year. Um, It was uh, probably some reduced management before that. Um, and somehow we made a crazy life decision to purchase it. Um, so yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. So, well, uh, why was it a crazy life decision? What, what's, what was so, going on? So, um, my background is that I'm a veterinary oncologist. Um, I'm originally from Vermont and, um, moved back here in 2011 after, 
living other places for a while. Um, and I moved back to take a job as um, the first veterinary oncologist in the state. Um, my husband is a physicist um, and uh, a particle physicist. Um, so we have zero background <laughs> in viticulture and enology, um, with the exception of I took a course in college years and years ago um, and just fell in Hello. love with wine. Um, and um, the long story short, basically, um, moved back to Vermont for professional jobs, um, really both enjoy our jobs, um, but I, we started having kids. And I unfortunately just had like zero flexibility um, with my job. I worked really long hours. I was on call all the time. And um, as, um, happens when you have kids, you kind of reevaluate what is important to you. And I realized quickly that, um, I just couldn't really, um, be there for my kids in the way that I wanted to be. Um, so I went part-time and then I, um, you know, after working part-time for a while, um, I kind of took a look at my life and kind of reassessed, like, where do I want to be in 10 to 15 years? You know, do I, is this working for me? And I realized that there was, um, there was just something missing for me. And I really wanted to build something. And I realized that I wanted to start my own business. And I think another big part was there was a big kind of creative side to my personality that just wasn't really, I wasn't really able to exercise in my current job. And um, so I started to just explore different options for starting a business. And um, we considered pretty seriously starting an ice cream business for a while. And um, we, since moving back to Vermont, I had noticed just vineyards around the state. And I actually went to college in the Finger Lakes region in New York. And so I knew a little bit about cold climate viticulture and coming back, I just, there was kind of this question in the back of my mind, like, could Burlington be like Ithaca, um, you know, from, you know, um, as far as yeah. like a wine industry and around um, the, a lake sort of situation. Right. 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 Um, so that You're was just kind of like a question. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. You're talking about the Finger Lakes, yeah, right? Yeah, Finger Lakes region. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I graduated college in like 2003. And I think, you know, their kind of industry was taking off. I think it's changed a lot since then, but and grown a lot. Um, but yeah, so I, I had that kind of question in the back of my mind. Like I, wine was just like a hobby. And like, I think kind of part of our, my husband and my culture, we met in grad school and just, you know, after I took this wine course in college and just you know, I was like the geeky kid that, you know, stayed up late at the library studying wine regions. Um, <laughs> probably one of the 10 <laughs> kids that took it seriously. Um, but, um, you know, I just found wine fascinating and I loved learning about varieties, different regions. And um, my husband and I just loved to taste. And, um, you know, again, it was just part of our kind of culture. And um, so, you know, as I was thinking about what we were going to do with our lives um, or what I was going to do with my life, um, my husband is still a full-time professor, um, wine came up. And um, I remember I was actually at um, a good friend's 40th birthday at a winery um, outside of Annapolis, um, Doden Winery. I don't know if you've heard of it, but no. um, it's a it's a, it's a a great winery. And um but Annapolis, Maryland? Yeah. So I believe okay. Doden's in Maryland, not Virginia. Um, and yeah, so I met the owner who was a retired physician. And I just remember him, um, you know, giving me a tour of the winery and the vineyard. And, you know, I just found it like something just clicked and thought it was just what a cool, you know, what a cool job, you know, just all the different facets between the vineyard, the winery, running the business. Um, and I remember <laughs> I like called my husband. He was actually, he was taking a ice cream course at Penn state that same weekend. And I was like, I had noticed over the years that occasionally UVM offered a viticulture course, the university of Vermont. And so I like got online and that course was offered for that summer. And I was like, I'm going to take this viticulture course. <laughs> like maybe we should, maybe we should start a vineyard. And, um, yeah, so I signed up for that course, and uh, basically we found out about this property through 
the course. Um, oh, wow. It was actually like the first day of the course. I was pregnant with my third kid. Um, so I was like the pregnant lady in the wine course and with a bunch of undergrads. <laughs> but um, the professor, who's a friend of mine, he asked the first day of the class, he said, you know, he said, um, if you were going to plant a vineyard in Vermont, where would you where would you plant it? And I said, well, I would I would plant it up in the Lake Champlain Islands. It's more temperate because of the lake effects. I want my fruit to really be able to ripen um, because there's obviously limitations in a cold climate. And um, he goes, I know this guy in Grand Isle that wants to sell his vineyard. Are you interested? And I was like, sure. <laughs> um, we, I obviously have a you know a family history from the islands as well, and. I grew up on the lake and, you know, when you grow up on the lake, the lake becomes a part of you. And I think also like in the back of my mind, I also was like, oh, it'd be so great to find a camp on the lake. And, you know, um, and anyways, long story short, um, we, we opened communication about this property. It wasn't really on the market. And um, yeah, we kind of dove into it. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, um, have you yet, regretted doing what you're doing and wish that you actually had started that ice cream business? <laughs> no, not at all. No, <laughs> okay, no definitely no regrets. I mean, life has gotten very chaotic. <laughs> um, we still talk about maybe, you know, when the wine business is more established, maybe still making ice cream, you know, it can be a, nice. a side hustle. Right. Um, so you're gonna, Rob, you're Rob gonna, was you, the primary you, ice cream maker and he was making some pretty darn good ice cream. So I'm um, not ruling ice cream out, but um, we are loving what we're doing in wine. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, it can always be an added, you know, an added value. Just now you, you just uh, have, you'll just add some little jer Jersey cows to the mix and you're right. good to go. Right, there we go. <laughs> I know, well, I do love cows. <laughs> we have sheep, <laughs> I want cows. Yes. <laughs> well, that was, gonna be, that was gonna be my next question. I, I'm guessing, with a veterinary background, I, I, well, I, I'm curious about that. Like, did you know? I know that you have sheep, and that you have 23 of them. <laughs> well, does that is that is there a specific number, or does that flock uh, expand and contract over uh, the years? Or that flock definitely expands and contracts. Um, okay, so we're we're so you. Like we're at the vineyard, beginning of our vineyard and winemaking journey, we're also at the beginning of our sheep journey, <laughs> for sure. Yes, yeah. Um, but basically, um, so even before the vineyard, when Rob and I moved back to Vermont, we had like an obsession with getting sheep. Um, I'm not quite <laughs> sure exactly where that comes from. My my parents had sheep when I was a baby, and there's lots of baby pictures, so I think I was just I was obsessed with that. But um, yeah. anyways, we even, when we bought our first house here, we even, it was like, it was like 10 acres, but it was in a neighborhood association and we made the association like vote on whether or not we could have sheep because that was so important to us. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so the sheep goes back, but, um, the desire for sheep. <laughs> Anywho, uh, when we purchased the vineyard and I started learning about, you know, that people incorporate sheep into their vineyard. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Um, so right. that was, you know, I start, started reading and learning about, um, you know, the values of having sheep in the vineyard. And so the first year that we had sheep, we got four of them um, with the plan to get them in the spring and slaughter them in the fall. So our uh -huh. vineyard is about an hour away from our winery. Um, so we live on the vineyard oh, okay. in the summer. Oh, that's right. Um, okay. And farm it ourselves. And then in the winter, we move back to Stowe, Vermont, um, which is the area we were kind of established in before we bought the vineyard. Um, Got it. And we also, okay. but when we initially purchased the vineyard, we didn't purchase the house on the vineyard. We actually lived... We bought an Airstream trailer and lived in that for the first two summers. Um, that we <laughs> I saw that on the website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw. That, yeah, that's a that looked fun. Yeah, All it, right. it was fun. It was. I, I look back and it's a little crazy. We had three kids, including a newborn. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. Dogs, two that's cats. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was. There's lots of stories, but um, so we, <laughs> you know, basically we didn't have like a home here, you know, in the winter. So um, when we purchased the vineyard. Um, we also, um, we, we basically built our winery out of our basement, um, in Stowe. Got it. Um, Got so it. that's okay. where our production space has been, um, and, and will stand for some time probably. Right. Um, Is that where you do tastings as well? Um, where... so we, um, the tasting room is actually on the vineyard. So we have a seasonal tasting okay. room on the vineyard. 
um, that's open yeah. in about 10, 12 weeks in the summer. Um, last winter, we did a pop-up tasting room out of um, a cool space in a hotel in Stowe. Um, so we did like oh, another nice. 10 week pop-up to kind of try on for size what it felt like to run a tasting room in Stowe. Um, the potential progression could be building a tasting room there or maybe even building, right. you know, a, a winery outside of our basement <laughs> and a tasting right. room. Um, but that's still, um, you know, we're, we're not in a rush to do that. I think that's one thing we learned from running the uh, tasting room last winter. We're, we're juggling a lot right now and our production space is working for us currently. Um, but that, that could be the future, you know, it, Maybe things will move to the vineyard. We're still figuring all of that that out. Um, is the advantage of having it out on the vineyard would be the sort of idyllic setting, right? But the advantage of being in Stowe would be people and yes. <laughs> like exactly. proximity to people. Exactly. No, I mean, even though it's, I mean, the transition between the location, two locations, can be you know a little challenging, especially with three kids. But um, you know, in some ways, the setup is is great because I mean the Lake Champlain Islands while they are just so gorgeous they do kind of shut down in the in the winter months and mm. you know Stowe is just always busy um so right. it actually that the setup that you know kind of happened organically I think works well and has been helpful to launch our business um you know most of our friends and our kids you know, kids, friends, parents, like a lot of them are small business owners and it's a really great community, um, you know, both in Grand Island and Stowe, but um, it's, it's been, it's been helpful um, having those connections and, and starting a, starting a new business. So, uh, but going back to sheep, which is where <laughs> we were starting. Yes. Um, so my, my uncle is also a vet and he used to always, um, he had this farmer up in the Northeast kingdom where he would, you know, get his, get his sheep in the, get his lawnmowers in the spring and then, you know, have his meat in the fall. Um, and that was the plan. Um, and we only started with four as kind of like a pilot project, but then of course our kids named them all. And, um, we have this, we have this small barn in Stowe. So I was like, well, there's only four, we can move them back. And, you know, the, of the initial four, there were three boys and a girl. And I was like, well, we'll probably have a baby and that would be cool for the kids. So we kept the initial, um, the the initial flock um okay and so we had our first lamb the first winter and then the next year we felt that we had things dialed enough that we got we added 10 more lambs so we had a flock of 15 um last year and um what we have we enjoyed you know having the lamb the first year and having sheep and stow we really enjoy as well so what we did last year is we, you know, we had we had 15 sheep, which is too many sheep for us to bring back to Stowe. So basically we um, slaughtered about half the sheep for meat. Um, and then the other half we kept, um, we kept, I think, four females last year. Um, we ended up with six babies. Um, so we, we lambed six um, ourselves last year. And then we added onto that again. So now we're up to 23. I think you know, between 20 and 30 is probably the size of flock that, um, we can handle right now. Um, so we're thinking this year that we'll keep enough females. We probably can't keep more than 10 sheep. We'll probably keep about eight females, um, that will probably replenish our flock ourselves. Um, we find that when we lamb ourselves, like the sheep are much easier to manage because they know us. Um, so, so yeah, so that's kind of the progression that's happened. Um, so yes, there is some shrinking and growing of the flock that occurs naturally. <laughs> um, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about, well, let me ask you a logistical question. Are there bridges that get you out to the island? You don't have to ferry Yeah, out. there's, um, so there's a, there's like a land bridge that gets you from the mainland onto South okay. Hero Island. Um, and then kind of, uh, moving into North Hero, there's an actual, there's like a drawbridge there. So it's like, okay. They're real islands. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, are, are you incorporating any other animals besides sheep? Uh, yet. not, not yet really. Um, I would say our dogs are very helpful. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. But I mean, they're not, you know, 
um, our one dog, Telly. Uh, I think she's the huge reason we don't have issues with deer. Um, and like, I have this huge garden oh. and we don't have any creatures eating any of the food. And I think it's cause I just think it's cause the dogs are around all of the time. Um, if you don't, if you don't ask her to come in at night, she is very happy sitting on, um, a sofa on the porch and just (laughs) keeping watch out (laughs) on her vineyard. (laughs) Oh, fantastic. All right. Well, that's, so I was going to ask about the deer because I noticed that from your video. I I really love that video. I wanted to like point that out for anybody to check out your Instagram channel, just how you're managing the sort of understory that would, if left unmanaged, just encroach on your vineyard and become right. a huge, you know, like, you know, uh, like weed management, yeah. essentially project for you. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. um, so you're, and you're, I mean, it, it's such like that before and after is so striking that it shows exactly how useful and how wonderful sheep can be totally, uh, yeah. when you would manage appropriately. I mean, they're getting all that wonderful stuff that, that is just turning them into these happy, delicious creatures. And then <laughs> you're, they're managing the story that, uh, that understory that, you know, it causes problems for you and it opens it up the landscape. It opens up the health of that, you know, that edge there so right. that you have, you know, better flow. And, um, are, are you, are the, I know it was like an old vineyard and it probably wasn't designed for, you know, integration of livestock, but is it, do you have to keep them out of the vineyard once bud break happens? How does, how do you do deal with all that? Yeah. So, um, what I think is so cool and exciting is that we're getting to figure out how to deal with all that. There's no, (laughs) no one really knows. Um, we, um, we are finding that, you know, we try to keep them in the vines as much as possible in the early season. So starting like mid-April is I think when we got them in this year. Um, I don't work, they, you know, they do nibble on things, but, um, you know, when buds are broken, I'm not really too worried about it. They actually will like sucker the trunks of the vines for us, which is super helpful, um, you know, unless we're really trying to like renew trunks you know, I, I think the benefit of having them there is way like, you know, is way outweighs kind of some of the risks that they pose having them in the vineyard. Um, well, what what is the trellis system that you have? Right. So it's, it's we're kind of in a unique situation in um, the Northeast where, um, you know, many people are growing hybrid grapes and a lot of hybrid grapes are trellis to high wire as opposed to VSP. Right. Um, so yeah, so we're naturally there, you know, basically the wire is, you know, around like five, six feet, um, between like four and six feet, I'd say. Um, uh, so it's, you know, big sheep can reach up to the high wire and, um, something about our vineyard, which is still a long work in progress is, um, we sit on a really shallow bedrock of limestone. Um, in some areas of the vineyard, we can't even dig down like two and a half feet. Um, so wow. our trellising system is, was in a lot of disarray when we purchased the vineyard, which we put a lot of work into straightening things out and digging a lot of holes. Um, I can't take much credit for the work, <laughs> my employees and Rob, um, more so, but, um, I think it's a unique part of our vineyard, but um, definitely not all of our trellis posts are straight. So, you know, we've had some, it's, it's a learning curve. We've had some situations where we've gotten sheep in an area where, you know, the trellis post was leaning. And so they got up and, you know, maybe did some damage to a vine or a vine, you know, came off the, um, you know, kind of fell off because a sheep was rubbing its butt on it. And, you know, so uh, there's definitely, you can have some losses, um, but we are in this situation where, um, we are trellising things up higher. And so there's an opportunity to have sheep in the vines longer um, than, you know, if you have VSP. Um, so, you know, sure. I'm really interested yeah. in keeping them in as long as possible. You know, once the shoots start growing really long, um, you know, and there's a lot of fruit, I get a little nervous um, <laughs> about yeah. um, the losses. Um, we did have them in there during Verasion last year for a little bit. And then, um, 
you know, I kind of, I kind of pulled them out of there pretty quickly because they were starting to do a little, a little more damage, but yeah, so we're figuring all this out, um, you know, a system to move the sheep around the vineyard during the growing season, you know, when you're spraying, um, is another, you know, there's a lot of questions to answer there. Um, one of the biggest concerns about having sheep in the vineyard, um, during, you know, when you're spraying, um, is if you spray copper, so, you know, copper is an organic mm-hmm. spray. Um, we do like a micro dose of copper as part of our biodynamic tea base sprays. And, um, the first year that I had the initial four sheep, I did a bunch of, um, forage analysis, you know, kind of looking at our forage before a spray, you know, the day after a spray, a week after a spray, two weeks after a spray, which really would be a nice little like master's thesis that you could kind of look at yeah, <laughs> copper and then what's it. safe and sheep. Um, so one of the, one of the, you know, few things I remember about sheep from vet school, I just remember this picture of this dead sheep from to- copper toxicity. So they're very sensitive oh, to copper. There you go. Um, wow. So that's why I kind of was like, oh, this makes me a little nervous. Let's, you know, we don't spray very much copper comparatively. Um, to kind of a classic organic dose, but I, you know, we wanted to look into that. So we've done a little work there and, you know, have a sense that generally if we spray copper, we don't put the sheep in until usually around two and a half, three weeks after that. Um, But more work needs to be done. And, you know, we love helping kind of begin answer those questions and figure that out. Um, And uh, yeah, we're, it's, it's, it's a work in process. Um, We're going to be working with, um, some of the Vermont um, and maybe federal agencies to help us with some sheep fencing and really like create, you know, the most efficient kind of grazing plan possible and doing that, you know, with our early season sprays, but it's, it's kind of like a cool problem to solve. Um, Yeah. So uh, it's been fun for, for both Rob and I. I like that. Um, I mean, can you talk more about what some of those solutions (laughs) Are, are that you're proposing? I mean, how that would work? Yeah, I mean, we're just trying to. So what we're what we're going to try to do, you know, so a big part of you know moving sheep around during the current season is just the labor of like moving the fencing. So we use electric netting. Um, right. So um, what we're I mean, can, oh, go ahead. I don't think anybody on this podcast is sort of describe that in detail but I, I wouldn't mind if you if you wouldn't mind <laughs> like, <laughs> like talking about what that actual labor looks like so you I, I mean I'm I'm familiar with it and I've seen video of it but if you yeah. can sort of like what 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 is that chore in a step-by-step sort of way right like? so we usually build um um so basically the the electric netting which is just this kind of movable electric fencing um, they're either 100 or 160 feet in length. And so we usually create a paddock um, of four of those fences. And then we generally want to set up a second paddock that they would move to. So generally you move sheep. I mean, it depends what time of the season it is and what's going on with the forage, you know, which is affected by the weather and the rain and everything. Um, but in the early, you know, you're moving sheep anywhere from every one to the max four days. So um, generally every two to three days, um, again, depending on the value of, you know, the nutritional value of the forage that they're grazing. So, um, you know, that takes, that takes a while. You're basically picking up, you know, these, um, there's just kind of metal stakes at the end of, you know, each segment of fencing and just get picking it up and moving. And then um, generally we make the paddocks so they're attached. So it's pretty easy to move the sheep into the next paddock. Um, but it's a lot of moving fences. Um, and so we are right. proposing this system um, where basically we would have a perimeter fence around the vineyard, um, which would inadvertently help with other potential issues <laughs> from the outside, which would be nice. Um, and then having an interior circular fence as well. And so then what we would do is those would be electrified and then we would attach the electric netting and we'd be able to more easily move the electric netting between kind of the interior and the exterior fence. Um, So it would just cut down on labor and help us kind of more efficiently move them. And then if we were to spray Mm. copper um, or need to spray copper, we would be able to very easily move them into their interior paddock um, where, 
again, they would just be able to move in there um, easily and, um, and then we'd be able to get the tractor through the vineyard. So, um, move out the fencing. So it just, I I feel like I need to draw a picture, (laughs) but yeah. And I guess, I guess it depends on like the layout of your vineyard too, right? Yes. I feel like a map would be really helpful. I don't know if this is going to come across. The way you were describing it, it sounded like a a sheep moat, like you were going to have. Yeah, exactly. Is that, is that possible? Yeah. Totally. totally. Yeah. I mean, imagine just kind of like two lines of fencing and then you're basically, using the electric netting kind of, um, in between those to create paddocks. Um, so it, I mean, there's still going to be some labor of moving the fences with the ideas we can do it more efficiently. Um, so, so yeah, we're, again, I don't have all the answers, um, but, um, we're getting more efficient at moving them and kind of understanding, you know, their value. I mean, it's, it's great. It's cut down on our mowing significantly. Um, I think we only did like one mowing course in the vineyard last year. Um, you know, obviously the biggest reason we're interested in the sheep is for their fertilization benefits. Um, and I don't think their hooves aerating the soil hurts anything. And, um, you know, as you mentioned before, the work that they're doing on the, you know, outside of the vineyard, I think has been incredibly helpful this year. We have tons of invasive buckthorn, Um, and sumac that has just been like encroaching upon all the blocks of our vineyard. And it's just amazing in like one day how much they can just clear out, um, which would be so much more man hours of labor. Um, So, yeah. So how do you electrify those movable fences? Are you using batteries or Um, solar? We have solar. Yeah. So we have these little solar panels. And it works regardless of your rainy... Yeah, they seem Summer to be working there. well. I mean, we leave the we leave the sheep in the vineyard um, until November, and you know, obviously daylight <laughs> shrinks down significantly in Vermont by right. then. Um, but yeah, we haven't had any problems with with them at all. I mean, the big the sheep are pretty good about staying in the fences. We don't have too many escape artists. Yeah, do you, um, I, I've heard of people, um, you know, sort of fence training the sheep. So you put them in a place where you know that you you have a dedicated electrical fence when they're young and that they bump into it a few times and they learn not to go up. Yeah. Against I mean, they're pretty anymore. good, but there's, well, there's one really smart one. Um, he's one of the original four. <laughs> his, his name is escapee because when we got the first four lambs, he, you know, we didn't turn on the electric fence and he like did a basically a somersault right. over the fence. Like when we initially got him on the property before he was grain trained and um, he literally ran around Grand Isle, did this like loop um, for three, six hours. I think it was, yeah, he spent two nights outside and I was like mortified of like him being like eaten by coyotes. <laughs> Anyways, right. chasing uh. sheep is a fool's errand, um, but um, he's still like he, when he figures out that the fence is off and they, they get like anxious when they know they're about to, if they're happy, like if they have food, they don't really care about escaping. They, they like each other. They like to be together. They have a good life. But if they're really ready to move, um, like yesterday morning, this happened, um, they get a little anxious. And if they learn that the fence is off, they'll just like, especially this one big weather that I have, he just like, he's like, (laughs) and he just leaps over and he does whatever he wants to do. Um, (laughs) but people, you know, people can, you know, I've heard, you know, people making fun of sheep for being dumb but it's like we probably wanted them to be that way exactly. <laughs> so that I they mean, would be you know they're not dumb they're not dumb at all. Right. they're interesting i right. mean they just have a, a very strong affinity to being in a flock <laughs> which can be helpful from right. a management perspective but right. um also frustrating um yeah they when yeah. we're moving them along the forest edge which you had alluded to before there's not quite as much you know, there's this great forage that they're clearing out for us, but they go through it a lot more quickly because it's kind of this like narrow paddock, you know, right. along the forest edge. So they run out of forage a lot more quickly. So they they totally got out. I, I remember yeah. I, it was yesterday morning, but on uh, what's today, Wednesday and Monday night, I was out there with them and I was like, I really should move them today. And I, you know, had my kids. I think Rob wasn't around and I was like, oh, they'll be OK by the morning. And then, of course you know our our employee yeah. nick shows up and as soon as he goes out all there he's like oh we got some sheep out um, so <laughs> all night they were planning their escape they were, yep. they were, but it's, it's fun uh i mean i i one of the things i you know i became a veterinary oncologist um but um i think 
one thing that I really missed. Um, I did a lot of large animal work when I was um, in vet school and I, I just, I, I love farm animals, you know, I love, you know, problem solving around them. And it's, it's been fun to like incorporate that into our farm. Um, and I think it's makes for a more balanced ecosystem and, um, you know, helps, helps produce a healthier farm. So, um, all sorts of benefits, meat, wool, yeah. <laughs> healthier soils, yeah. all the things. Um, yeah, so, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Less tractor passes for mowing. Yep. So the, the time that you mow is probably the end of the season when you kind of have to pull them out for the sake of not eating grapes and things. Is that right? And then yeah. you, you still, still need to get another mow in there before harvest. Right. Yeah. I mean, we've kind of, we, I mean, basically throughout the growing season, you know, I scan the vineyard about, you know, two or so times a week. And, you know, we, Mainly, I mean, one of the, as you know, biggest challenges of farming grapes in the Northeast is, you know, the fact that, you know, it's fungal disease just because we have more rain and moisture. Um, And the biggest things that, you know, I'm looking at is, you know, do do we have disease pressure? Do we have airflow? Um, And, you know, we base our kind of grazing and mowing, you know, based on what I'm kind of seeing in the vineyard. Um, So we kind of address different blocks as, you know, pressures arise or don't arise. Um, And we are lucky we have a really great kind of natural, you know, I think initially clover was planted as a cover crop. Um, There's Mm. a nice base there, but we've kind of let the natural um, flora grow and, um, it's, it, it's, it stays pretty under control. Um, so I think I, I have to look back at our, our notes for this year, but, um, we've probably done one pass of mowing, um, in addition to what the sheep have done, but we did have to pull the sheep out fairly early. Um, because of disease pressure, we did spray copper fairly early. Um, and so that's where we've been focusing them on the outside of the vineyard this year. Um, so last year, I think they only sprayed copper once at the end of the season. And I think I was a little, um, I regretted that a little bit um, based on the disease pressure that we had at the end of the season. Um, so, yeah. So we're, we're finding a balance there. <laughs> so say that again, you you sprayed, when did you spray? Um, the... So last season, we only, so yeah. I was trying to cut copper out completely so that the sheep okay. could be in the vineyard as long as absolutely possible. Um, right. within the vines, not just, um, you know, working other areas of the land on the farm. Yes. And yes, so we held off on, we ended up doing just one copper spray at the very end of the season. Um, this, oh, and I feel that, okay. that we, I feel that w- there was more disease pressure than I, I wanted. There was a little more downy and a little more black rot at the end of the season. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah. we were, we were, we definitely sprayed it a little copper earlier this year and had to pull them out of the vineyard because of that. Um, and then we were yeah. hoping to, you know, I kind of have this based on the uh, forge analysis that we had done, felt comfortable throwing them back in, you know, about three weeks or so after a copper spray. Um, and we definitely still need to do more research on that, but um, we ended up, we, we've had not a large volume of rain this year, but it's just been raining a little bit every day, <laughs> which is <laughs> not good for Downey and Black Rat. Yeah. And um, so we, we, we have been focusing their energies on the edges of the vineyard um, in the last month or so. So that you can um, spray more. Yeah, which is great, which is, you know, also yeah. helping the, the vineyard. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, so, um, yeah, I mean, from what I understand, I know the cycle with at least powdery and I thought downy and black rot were similar that it it is, it's the early season sprays that actually have the most effect, even though you won't see, you know, the mildews develop until late in the season. It's actually like, you know, dormant and like bud break timing for a lot of that stuff. Right. right. Which is Um, why we were like, okay, we got to spray copper earlier in the season this year. Yeah. Gotcha. (laughs) So, yeah. And do you, what else do you spray? So we do, um, we do a, we basically the base of our sprays, uh, we make horsetail and nettle tea. Um, okay. and so our spray program basically comes from, um, Lagaragista from Deirdre and Deirdre Heakin and Kayla okay. Barber, um, who have been, you know, uh, great mentors to me, um, and super helpful. Um, but yeah, basically we make, um, 
horsetail and nettle tea as a base. Um, and then we generally alternate um, a low dose of copper and then sulfur. Um, we're limiting some sulfur use just because I, these hybrids are pretty sensitive to it. Um, we don't spray sulfur yeah. on our Louise Swenson vines at all. Um, we also use a little bit of some of the newer um, organic um, uh the um, kind of natural plant um, immune system boosters. So um, Regalia and Lifeguard as well. Um, gotcha. Yeah, we're yeah, kind of hoping they would growing, replace yeah. copper. But I think, unfortunately, I think copper is one of like one of the strongest tools, you know, we have um, against yeah. at least no. yeah. Flora and Downy, um, which, you know, are around. But I mean, so far, so far, so good. So we, we kind of check the disease pressure and then base our spray based on that. But those are, those are the main tools we use. We also spray clay um, to help with insect control as well. Um, okay. And we usually spray at the beginning of the season. Um, we do biodynamic, we do 500 um, and then um, sometimes 501 later in the season. Um, yeah. Okay. Got it. Great. Thanks for that. Um, and you brought up Louise Swenson yeah. uh, as one of your grapes. Can you talk about that one? And then also I know it's, funny because that came up in another recent vermont uh interview that i did <laughs> um which i think you listened to yeah. and uh and any corrections you want to make because i think you were called out in that feel free to say <laughs> but i'd love to hear about your grapes essentially yeah. um i it's funny i i knew uh, i mean I, I got a response to that last one that somebody actually is really interested in in louise swenson um at least oh. one person out there is right. so yeah. anything you want to say about it you yeah, know like it's sure. pros so, cons flavors every right. characteristic there sure. yeah. um so um we haven't planted since we we um purchased the vineyard um but there's six varieties that we have so we've got three whites and three reds so louise swenson okay. is one of the whites prairie star um and then la crescent those are the three whites and then we have Marquette, okay. frontenac noir um and saint croix um, so regarding Louise Swenson, um, she, I don't know why I'm calling her a she, I guess because her name is Louise, but, um, it's, it's, she's a tough grape and a finicky grape. <laughs> I don't know how okay. to, um, okay. it takes a long time, my understanding, what I've seen, what I've heard, um, for her to really get, become the vines to really become established. Um, some of our older mm. vines are Louise Swenson and they're you know, produce very well. Um, and, um, they do great. There's some younger Louise Swenson vines, um, on the vineyard that are finally kind of just like, I feel like getting a foothold and, and producing more and looking a lot healthier. We also, all of our Louise Swenson was on BSP when we purchased the vineyard, um, low wire, and we have transitioned them over the last couple of years up to high wire, which, I think they look so much healthier now. Um, okay. So um, there's definitely some research out there with hybrids and that um, many of the different varieties will crop better on high wire. And certainly you're dealing yeah. with less splash, you know, fungal disease splash um, yeah. on the low wire. Um, are, so, you, are you, is that cane or spur pruning when so it's on we, the high wire? Yeah, we've transitioned the whole vineyard to cane pruning. Um, yeah, that just seems like a lot better for the fungal yes definitely well. that was getting rid of all the old wood yeah, yeah. we it, it's been a process <laughs> removing a lot of old wood um yeah. but every year pruning gets easier because um you know i mean there's certainly i don't know if there's there's maybe like a handful of vines that you know have still had to be spur pruned but whenever we can we um we came prune. Um, we're starting to renew a lot of trunks as well. I'm noticing a lot of like old trunk disease. Um, mm. So, so yeah, so I'll, I'll came pruned, but Louise, I mean, Louise makes a very light bodied, um, um, very pleasant wine. It's um, definitely has like aromas, like fresh, like young pineapple is what I always get on the nose. Um Ooh it has kind of this like herbaceous pininess to it that I think mm. some people, some, I find that it is somewhat polarizing of a grape. So we mm. make a, we make a straight, um, this year in 2021, we added 10% Prairie star to it. Um, it's Louise is the name of the wine. Um, it was hundred percent Louise. <laughs> um, and, uh, now we added 10% Prairie star this last year, but, um, just to kind of round it out and give it a little more body. Um, 
but it is like some people who come taste our wines, like favorite wine, they love it. But I, I also think there's kind of this like, or, I don't know if herbaceous is the right root word to use, but there's some, some flavor profile that is not quite familiar, I think, to all wine drinkers that that yeah. some people don't love <laughs> um but I, I i i think it can be a very nice wine i'm i'm very happy with our louise from 2021 um so i don't know if nice. that helps but <laughs> yeah no that's great um okay so prairie star uh and la crescent so yes. those are your whites are you are, are what's your favorite one of those in terms of like just ease and beautiful grapes and all that kind of stuff. Like what would you definitely Prairie, Prairie star okay. <laughs> Prairie <laughs> star is, I think my favorite, I'll, I have like a, a love hate relationship with La Crescent. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> everyone makes fun of the fact that for a do while, tell. while do I was tell. saying that I hated La Crescent, but I, I don't hate La Crescent. I just feel so like La Crescent <laughs> is like over the top with aromatics. Like it is, you know, gotcha. um, so um, it's just very intense. Um, and I think our La Crescent is, is very unique and intense too. And I, I think the first year that we made wine from it, I guess it was the second year when we made commercial wine, um, you know, it, the initial wine that we made, the, the acidity was like so biting. Um, like I think the TA on the initial finished wine was like 14 or I can't remember. <laughs> it was like, you know, it was wow. just so... <laughs> So, um, so acidic, but actually that wine settled into itself and, and people loved that wine. Um, we're basically sold well, out of yeah. it now, but, um, nice. but yeah, so I, I kind of like struggled with the intensity of La Crescent. Um, so my favorite white wine that we make is a, um, a co-ferment of 50% La Crescent and 50% Prairie Star. So Prairie Star is much less aromatic you know, more subtle aromatics. It definitely kind of, as it ripens, like get, you get like lychee fruit and some tropical aromas and um, it's, it, it's really beautiful, um, but much more subtle. And I mean, the, what people told me about, I feel like no one knows anything about Prairie Star, but um, when we initially bought the vineyard, people were like, oh, Prairie Star is a blending grape. And I was like, okay, what does that mean? Um, you know, <laughs> mix it with your Louis Swenson. Um, but I, I think it's, 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 I would say a full bodied white and that's, you know, why it is nice for blending. Um, right. But I, one of my favorite wines that we make, um, we started making in um, 2019, um, is called Regeneration Seven, and it's just a um, it's just a hundred percent Prairie Star Pet Nat, um, and it is just so lovely. Um, it's just mm. so balanced, and um, you know I'm not sure if we'll ever make a still Prairie Star like I, but I it is is really cool um, as a Pet Nat, and I love it blended with La Crescent. Like they just balance each other out really nicely. Um, nice, yeah. All right. What what about your reds again? Can you re mention those? So um, Saint Croix is about okay. just over a third of the vineyard is Saint Croix or Saint Croix, um, depending uh -huh. on who you talk to. Um, <laughs> so no, no good or bad, your French is yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So I really so Saint I'd say Saint Croix is probably one of my my favorite grapes on the vineyard. It's also yeah. a big pain in the butt to work with. It has super duper thin skins. Um, it's mm. it is the first thing that we harvest. Um, the bricks generally don't you don't want them to climb much more than like twenty two max, um, or okay. the fruit yeah. just starts to like fall apart. Um, right, because the skins are so thin, um, they just start like tearing away from the rachis, and you get you know fruit flies and. Wow wasps oh. and ladybugs and all all the things um but it's, yeah. i think it's a more balanced red wine um compared to like marquette and frontenac um who okay. i think have lovely qualities as well but um <laughs> I, I think it's it's it just makes a really cool wine so we make a rosé from saint croix a still rosé and then we make um <coughs> excuse me sorry getting over a summer cold um right. we also make um a still red um La Coutinelle la Gap, um, which is means the ladybug. My French is terrible, so sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it means the ladybug too. and the the wasp. Um, and so that's named for kind of the um named around kind of the labor of love that it is to harvest it. Um, but it, it makes a really mm. beautiful still red, light-bodied red wine. Um so um yeah, so you so yeah, Saint Croix and then Marquette 
You want, you want more on Saint Croix? I can keep going. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I'm no. I mean, I think that's okay. That's good. Go ahead, keep going on whatever. <laughs> Go. I mean, I was going to ask you about Marquette. I mean, that's a. How old is your vineyard? So the initial vineyard was planted in 2001. Um, okay. They lost okay. the initial vines though to a like a catastrophic hailstorm in 03. So basically, Oof. our oldest vines now are 2005. Um, so okay. our vines are anywhere between the bulk of it was 2005, 2006, but there were also some back blocks planted in 2010 and 11. Um, so I was going to say, yeah. I didn't think Marquette had been around commercially that long. How, is it from the original? Yeah. I mean, the Marquette okay. was planted, I think in 06. Um, and there's okay. definitely some old Marquette, like I would say Shelburne Vineyard and Lincoln Peak Vineyards Marquette is older than ours right i don't know about snow farm is the other um larger vineyard that was planted in the late 90s and boyden okay. too um yeah so they definitely have some older marquette too um yeah so you know people know marquette for being a cousin to pinot noir but i always tell people it tastes nothing like pinot noir in my opinion yeah, no, um, <laughs> but um <laughs> all the reds are super inky and um uh, so much pigment, <laughs> like the opposite yeah. of Pinot Noir. Right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, Marquette is, I mean, it's got tons of fruit. Um, you know, I, I feel like hybrids always get knocked for like having no tannin and definitely it's not high in tannin, but I think it, you can get some beautiful tannin in Marquette. Mm. Um, and yeah, so we, um, we make um, a still red called Barbara Ann from the Marquette, and um, we make a Pet Nat Rosé um, called Renewal M, which is super yummy. Um, just like luscious, like early spring berries, and um, it, it's really smooth and, and cool. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, we have, we make about 20 different wines every year. So we make a lot of different yeah. wines. And that kind of started just like, uh, you know, we're both scientists, both my husband and I are scientists. And, you know, the first year we made wine, we were like, okay, <laughs> so well, we have to make a still wine from each, you know, um, uh -huh. from each variety. And then, of course, you know, um, then the second year, we're like, oh, we had ideas on, you know, co-ferments. You know, we did, we've done like a co-ferment of our three whites and a co-ferment of our three reds. And then, you know, we, of course, had some, you know, the first year we weren't super happy with the La Crescent or the Prairie Star by itself. And that's that was the kind of the birth of um, Asters and Clover, which is the um, still white that I mentioned to you. And then Again, the second year we started to make wine, we're like, well, we should try to pet nat everything and see, you know, how that tastes. And so there's another, you know, there's another six wines. But, um, <laughs> of course, they didn't, you know, uh, those kind of evolved because a lot of our fermentations ran dry before we had a chance to bottle. So then we, like, blended in, you know, sugar that we had in the winery. So some of our pet nats, a lot of them are, like, 85. One of them, like, our regeneration, too, is 85% Louise Swenson and 15% Marquette because, we really wanted to make that pet nad and we added, added in the Marquette and it's such a cool, lovely combo um, that we've continued to mm. make that. So basically we've just continued to do experiments every year. Um, we, we're trying not to exceed 20 wines a year, but it's just super <laughs> fun. Like we just love. This is what happens when you put two scientists in a winery yeah, together. Right, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's just, it's, I mean, what's so cool about what I love about, growing wine in in Vermont and in the Northeast and all these, you know, hybrid varieties that was just very little is known about how, well, how to grow them, how to vinify them. Um, but, you know, it's kind of like, I remember when I first took that viticulture class, like just learning about all these different varieties and like, like the possibilities are endless. Like no one really knows what the best grapes to grow here are because it's just a, you know, uh, a wine industry in its infancy, right? And I just love the idea of like experimenting with different grapes and then experimenting with different winemaking techniques. And um, so, I mean, our goal is to just make the best wine that we can with the grapes that we have. Um, and, you know, we've just kind of adopted the philosophy of like minimal intervention and, um, you know, the results have been good so far. It's just fun. Um, so, yeah. Um, That's great. Yeah. I, I mean, I, it's interesting to hear how much, even with the hybrids, you 
pretty much need to treat them. I mean, you need to spray them um, pretty regularly anyway. Yeah. It sounds like. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think you can definitely do less. I mean, but um, yeah, yeah, you have to pay attention for sure. Um, Yeah. Well, uh, I I can't imagine if you were trying to grow a niffer what it would be like. Right, Um, right, right. No, I mean, I I have a good friend and he's, he's a mentor. He owns a winery in in Quebec and um you know he grows mainly vinifera and um you know he I mean we have this great relationship and I just took him through the vineyard in the early spring and he's like oh you know there's just we don't have to be as anal with the ground management we don't you know like with the there is the flexibility you know that I think he saw that we have um but you know you still have to pay attention I mean we still have to get in there and pick out you know, black rod and downy. And, um, you know, we, there's a lot of handwork, there's a lot of spray work, there's, you know, all the things, but, um, there might be a little more flexibility there for sure. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, well, speaking of all these wines, I know (laughs) from having, you know, a few, like not even half of what you have, it is such a pain in the butt to make labels and get labels approved for all these. And then to think of it ahead of time so that when bottling comes around, you're not like, oh crap, like there's a month lead time to get to oh, you yeah. know, the oh, designer yes. and the printer and yes. approval oh, and, and we need to bottle next week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but having said all that, your labels are gorgeous. They're just really beautiful, beautiful labels. And what what's the story behind that the artwork on those yeah that's it's been a super fun um process um so i had this vision um initially for the labels to create and basically a pattern um that incorporates like features of the vineyard flora and fauna for each variety um and the inspiration is the idea of kind of like a vintage wallpaper um, which was like my passion project with my second son. Um, I wanted to create uh, a world map um, on his like nursery wall with mm-hmm. um, and find like vintage wallpaper and have like each continent be a different um, a different pattern. So we did that. I had a very artistic friend who helped me. Um, she basically, I, I, I bought the wallpaper and came up with the idea, but she executed, um, which, um, uh, which I just loved. And we ended up selling that house and I just like love that idea. And so that kind of inspired the labels, um, to kind of bring that forth and make it more personal. So I worked with a designer, um, Andrew Dernovich. He's out of Essex, Vermont. He's amazing. Um, and, I'd never really worked with a designer before and like, you know, to try to like have someone execute your like brainchild is kind of this crazy process, but he was so good and professional. Um, but yeah, we worked on these patterns together and we tried to even kind of get geeky about like the characteristics of the wine and, you know, the vines in the vineyard and try to like incorporate, you know, again, flora and fauna into those patterns. Um, so you'll see that like our, like our still Marquette has this mark, this kind of red pattern with a deer on it and um, like a raccoon and a fox. And, um, and then yeah. our like red co-ferment, which has Marquette, Saint-Croix and Frontenac, um, has all three of those varieties patterns kind of ripped across the label. Um, and the same thing for our yeah. um, co-ferment of our white wine. Um, so yeah, it, it's just kind of fun. Um, and then we get like really geeky with the sparkling wines and how we kind of like subtly incorporate those patterns into the labels. Um, our first Petnat line, which is our regeneration series, that kind of strays a little bit, but it's it's also like a repeating sheep pattern. Um, right. And each different wine, um, we just numbered them, but um, has like a different colored sheep in a different area of the label. It's just kind of fun. Um, so yeah. Pet nuts are fun. So we made that a little more <laughs> fun. But yeah, no, it's so, been like super, such a fun process to 
Art, so you're creating that artwork? Yourself. So our designer, I mean, so it's, okay, been, it's like a process yeah. with the designer. No, I give Andrew got all it, the credit. <laughs> got it, got it. Um, okay, so your designer, yeah. right. So yeah, I was like going to say, so you have a designer. Us, but you're not working on Photoshop. Oh my God, no. Oh my else. God, <laughs> I'm, I'm a computer. No, no, challenged. Um, um, no, yeah, I was like, that, that, you, I was like, you could have a whole third career if you wanted no, to. No, no, <laughs> no, no more, no more. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, I've got business for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, contact Andrew Jernovich. He's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, what, what uh, could you do? Do you want to give your social media and website stuff and things like that where people can learn more by wine and yeah. join, join the fun? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're pretty active on Instagram. It's at Ellison Estate Vineyard. Um, and Facebook, just Ellison Estate Vineyard. Um, our website is www.eevwine.com um, or Ellison Estate Vineyard is very long. You can type that out as well. <laughs> um, but you can find information about our wines there. So we um, we sell directly in Vermont um, through our tasting room right now. But um, when that closes, um, we definitely sell wine direct by appointment. Um, we are also at a lot of, um, local establishments in Stowe and Burlington, and there's a list of most of those on our website. Um, it's growing. Um, but, um, we also ship to 37 States. Um, so that's an option as well. And we have a wine club called flock, um, for our sheep, um, named for our sheep. So, um, we ship wine club as well. And then we have a wine club in Vermont. You can pick up the wine club locally in Vermont, um, at Wilder Wines, but we also, um, do a lot of cool, we try to make it more than just a bottle club and do a lot of really cool, um, pickup events and, um, for our members. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where you can get the wine, um, Fantastic. and different options yeah. for the wine. So, yeah. Well, I, you know, as a closing question, I guess for you, we didn't really talk about your winemaking, but you know, you say on your website that you're really very minimal, essentially natu making natural wine, yep. uh, may, might add a little bit of sulfur probably to the, the still wines I'm guessing at bottling. Yes. Um, do you, what, what inspired that? Like what, what inspired your approach to that? I mean, obviously you studied at <laughs> La Garagiste so that your mentoring was probably in that vein, but yeah, was no. there anything, any, anything else behind your, your philosophy of winemaking? Yeah, no, I mean, there? we really kind of, again, leaped into this, but you know, our first conversation, you know, um, before we bought the vineyard, we sat down with Deirdre and Caleb and, um, you know, the advice that they gave us, um, was just get some wine, <laughs> you know, crush it, let it ferment, see what happens, um, and kind of go from there. And we really just kind of did that. Um, we yeah. have never, you know, used any yeast. Um, we kind of let the process happen naturally. And, um, I, I remember when we, <laughs> first when we first got our, our first crepes into our basement it was like totally empty and I just remember Rob and I being up in the middle of the night and look at each other and be like we have no clue what we're doing <laughs> but <laughs> but you know we stomped on the great we you know decided you know how much did you stem um based on taste we stomped on the grapes and the fermentation happened and um you know, I remember the very first fermentation that we did, I just remember getting these like crazy aromas of ethyl acetate. And I was like, oh my God, yeah. we're making nail polish remover. This is horrible. Like, what are we doing? And I remember reaching out to, you know, uh, um, Todd Traskos. I remember emailing him and, and you know, and Deirdre and me like, what do I do? What do I do? And, and everyone was like, just be patient. I think that was the best advice that I ever got because um, those those aromas blew off and, you know, we were able to create some really great wines. Um, so it's um, it just has kind of worked out that way. Like, I, I, I don't think we went into this being dogmatic that we were going to just do natural wine, but I'm so glad we got that advice and followed that path because I think it's, you know, make makes for better wine and it's the right way to make wine. Um, so, so yeah, um, it's, it's, it's been great. Um, it's, that's great. Yeah. I had a, I had a conversation with somebody last night and, um, I was just describing the process and I was like, well, you know, grapes are constantly changing. <laughs> You're just stepping in and, and, and 
really helping to guide them towards delicious changes right. rather than not delicious changes, right. you know? Right, right. Um, Absolutely. And yeah. If, yeah, like I love the idea that it's just uh, like the, the the role of those of us who are, you know, in that position of, of like taking the grapes from the vineyard into a bottle are it's you're not really making wine. You're just like guiding the change right. in, in that direction. You yeah, know? <laughs> definitely. Um, no, and, um, yeah. you know, I think just, you know, the one, you know, again, we had zero formal or very minimal formal training. I mean, I took, I took a couple of UC Davis courses and I did, you know, I've, I've done some things, um, you know, since we started this all, but I mean, really <laughs> advice from, um, my friend Matthew up in Quebec and from Deirdre and, oh, Ethan Joseph at Shelburne Vineyards has also been incredibly helpful, especially with a lot of vineyard stuff from the very beginning. Um, but just kind of trusting in my palate, you know, and that was something that, mm. you know, I think fortunately, you know, I had developed, you know, over time. And um, I think that's really the most important thing. You know, like you said, you're just guiding the process. Um, so, and we, we definitely made some really crappy wine that first year too. <laughs> You know? Yeah, yeah, no, that it happens. It happens. <laughs> Bad wine it happens. happens. Um, sure. Yeah, especially I think, when you're taking those yeah. risks. You learn yeah. that you actually have to really pay attention. That was the biggest thing I did yeah. that first year. But yeah, um, yeah no, I, I think you know, I, I still kind of like pinch myself. You know, like every vintage, I'm like, oh god, was it a mistake? Like, did am I going to be able to make <laughs> make a good wine again? <laughs> so far, it seems to be all seems to be repeatable. But um, yeah, it's great. Oh, it's yeah. it's such a great process, and and we really enjoy it. Um, so. All right. Awesome. Well, fun. Well, thank you so much for talking about this. It's great to learn about you. And I think it sounds like such a cool thing that you're doing. It sounds like there's another little uh, Lake District wine country that's happening yeah, in New England. Definitely. So definitely. you guys will be the pioneers one day. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thanks again. Thanks so much, Kendra. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, great talking to you too. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And if you did, please do leave a review for the Organic Wine Podcast. It helps a lot and we want to get the word out to as many people as we can, which your review will help do. Thanks so much.